0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. I thought it was interesting that it worked out to fall upon this passage of the transfiguration of Jesus, which parallels so nicely with the passage of the Son of Man in his glory in Revelation 1, 12 through 16 that we looked at this morning. But just as a reminder of some of the things we've seen recently in this book of Luke, Herod was confused uh, by Jesus. He was intrigued about his popularity, and yet his interest was fleeting. It was superficial. Um, He was really interested in learning more about Christ, seems to ensure his own authority and, and position were not being threatened by him. At least that's, that's the indication we'll have when we, when we see them actually meet later on. So the feeding of the, the 5,000 that followed that puts the question of Jesus' identity before the crowd. Same thing that Herod was wrestling with, with Jesus' identity, is now placed before the crowd, but we don't actually hear the crowd's response or we don't see what the crowd thinks about Jesus after his feeding of the 5,000. But then it's on the lips of Peter right, that makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Christ of God. And he makes that confession. And then Jesus immediately foretells his, his death and, in, and warns them of the cross that they themselves would have to take up. Um, and so they're in of Philippi. And, uh, or that's where they had been during this conversation. Um, Jesus continued, or he continues that conversation with the disciples, warning them of that death and resurrection, uh, of his own death and resurrection, and of their own suffering on his behalf. And they were going to face that in an, at an increasing level, as we see recorded in the book of Acts. And throughout the book of Acts, that persecution gets to a point that they actually have to, to the believers, leave, right? They flee and and. The result is it spreads the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea. It goes into the surrounding areas because of that persecution. So this conversation that he's having about their, the identity of Christ is going to give them that strength to persevere. It's very similar to what we talked about this morning with the idea of this image of the vision of the Son of God that's given to John in the beginning here to, to kind of propel them through the rest of the book to help them to see that they, they can Trust in him. They know that he is their high priest, their king, their sovereign. And the glory that they witnessed would be something that they too would share in, right, if they persevered to the end. And so before we read this passage, verses 28 through 36 of chapter 9, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you... Uh, Once again, that we have this opportunity to reflect upon the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it fill us with hope and anticipation for the day when we will see him face to face, when we will experience that glory in all of its fullness and splendor. Lord, we long for that day, but we also recognize that we have not arrived there yet, that there is work to do. And so we pray for your leading hand. Again, that you would guide us and uh, help us to accomplish the mission that you've given to us as your church. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Amen. This is God's holy word. So, this first point I want to make in verses 28 through 31 is, is we're seeing the, the glory of the sun. Uh, it's eight days. After his conversation with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, uh, he takes his closest disciples up on a mountain to pray, in verse 28. Um, remember, he's been trying to get away. He's taking his disciples with him away to pray and to spend those times in quiet, and oftentimes he, he ends up being surrounded by crowds who, who need help. In this case, though, he gets up on top of a mountain, and there's been four different sites that have been suggested um, and probably more than that, but four primary ones um, that have been suggested as potential locations for the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them record the location precisely. But we know that Caesarea Philippi was, was located right at the base of Mount Hermon, so it's a good chance that that was the mountain they, this, they as, began ascending, right? And it just took them eight days of, of a journey, or, or eight days later they, they uh, made their way to that top and top of the mountain. Um, another place, and actually traditionally, the one that was considered for a long time this mount was Mount Tabor, but it's quite a distance from Caesarea Philippi. And so it's, um, they would have had to make their journey there pretty quickly to make it in time. And on top of Mount Tabor, at this time, there was a military fortress. Uh, and so it seems unlikely that, that a scene like this would have taken place where there was already quite a bit of people that would have been present on top of that mountain. So we really don't know if it was Mount Hermon, Mount Tabor, or some other mountain. There's several ranges in that area, in that region, that they could have gone up to. But the reason why Mount Hermon is oftentimes um, regarded as inaccurate is because we know when they get back down, there's a crowd of people, including scribes and Pharisees. And so they don't believe that that region had much of a population of Jews. It was a Gentile region. So unless everyone had trekked up there to, to see him, um, then then it seems likely that, that they were somewhere else nearer to Jerusalem uh, but again we, we simply don't know the precise location when Jesus was transfigured his face shone and his clothing became white just like we read in Revelation 1 um, it's a picture of the ancient of days it's a description of him really taking on these divine attributes and, and, and qualities um, So Matthew uh, confirms the same, Testimony that Luke describes here of the transfiguration. And it's important to know that, that Jesus had that glory before his incarnation. In fact, he possessed glory in the presence of the Father before the world existed. That's how John puts it in John 17, verse 5. John spoke of him in his prologue as the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Right, the disciples, had seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. So in his high priestly prayer, later on, Jesus will pray that his disciples might also see that glory that he possessed with his Father before the foundation of the world. And so that glory that he expressed in the transfiguration is of the same substance, um, the author of Hebrews would say, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's the same glory that Isaiah saw and spoke of in his own visions. Um, John tells us that actually in the gospel, John chapter 12, verse 41. And now Jesus is revealing that same glory to his disciples, to these select few disciples. It's a foreshadowing of the glory he will manifest for all eternity. And so they received this glimpse of Christ in his exaltation. All right, Christ had been in his state of humiliation from the incarnation forward. All right, He's in that state, but they have a very brief glimpse of him in his exaltation. And after undergoing the, the climax of his humiliation and his death on the cross, Jesus would be glorified in his resurrection, where they would see him in a a prolonged state in his resurrection, his ascension. And then again, that exaltation we consider continuing all the way through to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes upon the church. Um, The same idea of of the glory of Christ being shown is represented in all of those various um, elements or aspects, events of redemptive history. Surrounding Christ's first coming. But his appearance is also very similar to the one we read this morning, right? About his return. Uh, it reflects um, an emphasis upon his authority to judge. That's that's what it did in, in Revelation 113 and upon his return. But here it seems the, the emphasis upon his glory to save. Moses and Elijah, what are they speaking to him about there in verse 31? It says, behold, two men, verse 30 actually, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The word there is Exodus. They, spake, they spoke to him about his departure, and it's very clearly a reference to his, uh, his coming crucifixion, because it says he was about to accomplish it at Jerusalem. So he's nearing the end of his ministry, Moses and Elijah appeared to him to indicate their encouragement and support um, of him in this redemptive mission. So how is this an, another exodus? Right? In, in the Greek, that's literally the, the word here. It's exodus. Well, just as Moses led God's people out of slavery to the Egyptians and brought them into the promised land, Jesus, under the new covenant, Becomes a better Moses, right? And he leads out those who are enslaved to sin, right? Leads them out of that slavery to sin and death into the new heavens and the new earth. He accomplishes something far more glorious than Moses did. So the presence of Old Testament witnesses, Moses and Elijah, confirms Jesus' fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Uh, They become representatives of the Old Testament. And they foreshadowed him. Both of these saints, in fact, had unique departures of their own. Moses died on Mount Nebo, and it said that God buried him in a place that no one could, could ever determine where it was. Um, and then Elijah was caught up or taken up in a chariot of fire in Second Kings 2 verse 11, never actually tasting death. So both of them also witnessed the manifestation of God's glory different episodes in their own ministries where they saw the glory of God Exodus 25 through 31 and then 1 Kings 19. So their their primary roles however were always to point forward to Jesus Christ. Right? And it's as if they're coming now to to exemplify that that is what's taking place here that that this Christ is fulfilling all that the law and prophets spoke about. And as the Messiah has come they have an interest apparently in the event that's about to take place. These are the things that angels long to look into. The salvation that Christ accomplishes on the cross in his death. The idea that God would send his son. And it's something that these glorified saints are also interested in learning more about. And so they, they come and they have this conversation with Jesus. We obviously don't have the details of that conversation. We simply know that's what that was the topic of their words. J.C. Ryle says If saints in glory see in Christ's death so much beauty that they must needs talk of it, how much more ought sinners on earth? Right, how much more in our sins should we glory in the cross? Should we reflect upon its impact? In our lives, having just been forewarned of Christ's suffering and their own participation in that suffering, the transfiguration of Jesus serves as an encouragement to these select few disciples. And this vision of Jesus in glory would have strengthened their faith as they awaited His return. And it it does indicate that they kept silent about it, and you wonder about that. Why why would they keep silent about something so glorious? Well. Um, Matthew informs us that it was, uh, that Jesus charged them to to remain silent about it, to be quiet. And just as he had done many times in the past that we've seen even in Luke of him telling them to be quiet about his identity, to not share it too soon because it might um, disrupt the ministry that he was accomplishing. So when they did get around to sharing it, however, their words about this event would have comforted the saints who took it to heart. Right? even as it comforts us. The glory serves to build up our hope. It creates a sense of anticipation about a glory that awaits. Um, but it does follow suffering and humiliation. Right? This glory, was a, it was a glimpse of glory, but it, it, it was a glory that would be future after his suffering. As long as we remain in this flesh, we are acquainted with grief. We too suffer. We too go through trials and tribulation. And we long for the glory of the perfected kingdom. But for now, we, we must persevere through present suffering. And that's what they're being prepared here for. So the glimpse of glory that these three disciples witnessed, it would have served that to, to build that hopeful anticipation. And that's why Peter responds the way he does. In verses 32 and 33, what does he say? Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So, so Luke gives us a clue. This is, this is a statement of ignorance from Peter. He doesn't know what he's talking about here. He, he's not aware of the, the, the reality that's being expressed, but his request in some ways is commendable. Right? I think sometimes people give Peter too hard of a time. Kent Hughes says, if there, were, if there ever was a time for silence, this was it. But Peter was a man who could always find something to say when nothing could or should be said. And there is some truth to that, right? I mean, he, definitely Peter had a way of speaking before thinking, but his, his reaction here does indicate a desire, a, a, a desire to be in this state, to, to let this state of glory be prolonged, right? It's a desire to remain with his glorified Savior. But after he's had time to reflect upon the experience, it's, it's clear that this transfiguration stays with Peter in First Peter, uh, chapter four, verse thirteen. He understood that that we could rejoice that we get to share in the sufferings of Christ, because then we will also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. It's as if he got it at that point. Right now, after reflecting, he understood that suffering comes first, and so he's reiterating that, re- reiterating that to believers in his first letter, and then later on, just before his death. Um, writing in probably the late 60s, 67, 68, Peter was still writing about the impact of the Transfiguration. In Second Peter chapter one, verses 16 and 18, we read: "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory." This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And he's he's still reflecting upon that. And it's, he's still using that to encourage the saints whom he's writing to, to say, listen, this is a testimony we heard from that God the Father commending to us. We saw him in his glory. There's something positive about Peter's request, right? He desires the right thing. It's just his timing is a bit off. He was created to share in the glory of Christ. And so it's right for him to long for that. Um, but he wasn't ready to receive it in its fullness at this point. Jesus promised Martha that if she believed, she would see the glory of God. You read that in John 11:40, And then he promptly raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. So something about that, enjoying that experience was seeing the glory of God as well. Believing faith begins a process of transformation. Paul says this to the Corinthians, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we marvel about the glory of the Lord, we recognize that there is an element in which we are now participating in that glory. Right? It's, it's the very thing that's transforming us into the image that he's called us to. So later on, during Jesus' high priestly prayer, he will acknowledge that believers share in the same glory that he received from the Father, and that's what allows them to experience unity. Unity. And then under the ministry of Peter and Paul, the Gentiles were also brought into, as Paul says in Colossians, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so all of us, all of it, believers experience that glory that we get a glimpse of in this passage. We will continue this process of transformation until Christ returns and and brings us in glorified bodies into the new heavens and new earth. And then William Hendrickson says, on the other hand, this apostle's very desire to prolong the glory scene. And right? he says, how good it is for us to be here. It does show us that he had not yet fully taken to heart what Jesus had taught him just prior, right, about the suffering that they would endure. From suffering, from the cross, whether for Jesus or for himself, he wishes to stay far removed Maybe there's an element of that in us, right? There's an indication here, I think, that Peter was willing to remain in this kind of temporal state of glory, this qualified glory, if you will, because it was so much better than the daily struggle of ministry, right? And he enjoyed it and wanted to remain there. He wanted to remain in that state of peaceful fellowship rather than going back out there day after day working with the crowds, taking long trips and journeys up mountains and down mountains, right, healing the sick. Um, but it could not have lasted in this fashion right? that he was experiencing. Jesus did have to suffer, and so did Peter. And so it's good to be filled with hope and anticipation about the future glory that awaits us as saints, but it must never distract us from our present task. In the meantime, we have been called to a hard work. Let us engage that work, determined to persevere. And that means that we must take these brief glimpses of the glory of God with us, right, into the conversations that we have in the workplace, into the conversations that we have with our neighbors, to recognize that we are experiencing something of that even now as we sprinkle those conversations with salt and light. We bring the vision of glory into the workplace and into our experiences with our neighbors, and we recognize that our time in this world is short, right? And the glory that we see a glimpse of now we will enjoy for all eternity. So although Peter was confused at this time, we know, we know he got the point loud and clear on the day of Pentecost. He was waiting for the Spirit to empower him, and then he was willing to proclaim the gospel to all who were willing to listen. And he does so in the face of persecution. And even as that persecution uh, continued to get more and more intense, Peter was faithful. And may that be an encouragement to us whose transformation is a daily, ongoing process as well, right? that we can trust in the Spirit that, that Christ has given us to continue that work that he's begun. Well, there's a very brief, we'll close here with this brief um, idea of the Father commending his son. You have the cloud of God's presence descending upon all who had gathered. And we'll come back to that. We'll close with that in a moment. But there's two allusions here to the statement that that comes next, the father's commendation of his son. You have a hint of Psalm 2:7 in the reference to the Lord's son. Right? The, the, voice says from, the voice that comes out of the cloud says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Well, Psalm 2.7 speaks of the Lord's Son, and then Isaiah 42.1 speaks of God's servant as my chosen. Right, and so there's, they're being combined in this statement here. The father had given the same com- commendation of his son at, at Jesus' baptism. And so as we consider this morning, this experience ultimately leaves the disciples terrified. Um, you read about that in... Mark chapter nine, verse six, but it also says it here in verse thirty four, as he was saying these things a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Again, it's natural for them to experience that reaction in the in the presence of such righteousness and holiness. The shepherds were filled with great fear when the glory of the Lord shone around them in the beginning of this gospel, Luke chapter two, verse nine. And again, we learn from Mark that, that they kept silent about this because Jesus had charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they were told to, to be quiet about it until they see Jesus resurrected. And really, at that point, all of these disciples would have witnessed and seen the glory of, the, of their Savior. And for whatever reason, it, it needed to be kept a secret until they had beheld his glory at the resurrection. So maybe Jesus knew it would stir up their jealousy, as they would shortly begin debating about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. All right? Keep this to yourselves, you three. Um, but but as we as we consider again what Jesus was fulfilling here, and and that's this image of the cloud that descends upon them, this divine cloud. Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of all those glorious images from the Old Testament. Right? All of the, the clouds of the Old Testament that you read about, of the divine presence um, that represent the presence of the glory of God, you have the pillar and, in the Exodus. You have the cloud that passed Moses as he hid in the cleft of, cleft of the rock. You have the Shekinah glory that descends upon the tabernacle and the cloud that, that filled Solomon's temple on the Day of Dedication. Uh, they all point to the glory of our Savior that's now manifested in his transfiguration. And Jesus was the cloud and the glory of God all along. He remains the loudest and clearest manifestation of God's glory today. And the hope of all true believers is that we will enter into that glory upon Christ's return. Remember, we've, we've talked about this before, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. it's a reflection of our enjoyment of that glory in the new heavens and new earth. So Kent Hughes says, someday we are going to be in that cloud the Shekinah glory is going to surround us so that we can enjoy and experience the same things these disciples saw. The glory of Jesus reveals his authority to save, and it certainly should increase our desire to be with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.